2: the New Statesman.
0: Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Rachel. And I'm Freddie. And on today's episode of the New Statesman podcast, we discuss the government blocking Scottish gender recognition legislation. And you ask us, how will the stalemate in Stormont end? So we're barely a month into the new year and already there's talk of a constitutional crisis. We've been through our fair share of these in recent years. The government is deciding to block gender recognition legislation passed by the Scottish Parliament using a mechanism that's being described as the nuclear option because it's the first time ever they've used this sort of mechanism to stop the bill before it reaches royal assent. And the idea of this bill means self-identification from the age of 16 for people to change their gender. And the concerns are that it would have an adverse impact, that's in the government's words, on the Equality Act, which is UK-wide legislation. The idea is that this legislation on gender recognition, which is a devolved policy issue, may clash with the provisions of the Equality Act. And we spoke about this with our Scotland editor, Chris Dearin, last week, who correctly predicted that the UK government would make this move. Could it possibly be a mistake, though? I mean, could it boost support for Scottish independence, seeing as the Supreme Court ruling against Scotland calling a second independence referendum without Westminster's approval? That failed. And we did see a boost in the polls for independence, as Ben Walker has shown on his polling site of the nation
1: Yeah this is one of the problems with what's going on we've got two things interacting together we've got gender reform but we've also got the constitutional settlement between the UK government and Westminster so what the UK government here has triggered as you said Anoush is section 35 which is part of the 1998 Scotland Act and it basically says that you know if the Scottish government pass a bill or try to amend a certain act that impacts reserve matters or the way that reserve matters are implemented across the UK then the UK government can take that step. As you say, it's the first time it's ever happened. And that's led to the SNP accusing the government of trampling over Scottish democracy. And that's suddenly become a much bigger constitutional crisis. And it looks, as you said, as if we're going to eventually solve this dispute in court, and that's going to go on for quite a while. And all these other political, constitutional and legal arguments are going to be thrown into this broader debate about what sort of policy we should have on the process to get a Gender Recognition Act.
3: Freddie wrote a great piece on this earlier in the week. I think it's, when you look at it from a political perspective, it kind of benefits both parties in a way. This is like a hard unionist approach from the the UK government where they're being very assertive about how they think rights should work across the UK and where they think that overlaps, that they're going to put their foot down, as it were. And while I think the Scottish Parliament hasn't legislated in bad faith to try and bring about better rights for trans people, I think Nicola Sturgeon's quite happy that we're having a fight about the Constitution because it enables the SNP to continue repeating the line that the government's prepared to trample all over the Scottish Parliament and that should strengthen the case for independence in her view.
0: Well, that's the thing, isn't it? It's interesting because you'd think from the UK government's perspective, the political benefit of picking a fight like this might be along the culture war lines, which, you know, previous governments have used. But actually, they're not really doing this. I think it's really interesting that the Minister for Equalities, Kemi Badenoch, has been quite quiet, actually. It's almost like they're keeping her back from this debate. We've heard from Alistair Jack, the Scottish Secretary, a lot more. By the standards of the rhetoric in this kind of policy space, which can get very toxic very quickly, we're not seeing that level of... That's,
1: level of fury are we yeah and I think it is interesting that they're trying to keep the debate on the legal arguments and we've also seen this week the government announced plans to ban trans conversion therapy so we've got two different tracks on a similar debate sort of makes you think that they don't want to make this into a a culture war or a dividing line straight away. They do want to focus on the legal arguments.
0: Yeah. And I should make the point to our listeners that that, the the point about Kemi Badenoch is significant because she is someone who is seen as a culture warrior and a lot of conservatives do praise her for being someone who's very vocal on anti-woke issues. That's right. I also think the
3: government's kind of trying to take this dual approach because it doesn't want to be seen as going absolutely too far in one direction, not least because it it divides their own party as well. And when it comes to self-ID, the former Prime Minister Theresa May made clear that she thought it was something important mm. to do. She wanted to demedicalise the process when she was Prime Minister. And when you look at how when it was legislated for in Scotland, you had, I think it was three conservative MSPs that actually voted for the legislation. You had Labour MSPs voting for it. You had some SNP MSPs voting against it yeah. and when you look at the situation down here again it, it divides the Labour Party and it divides the Conservative Party so everyone has to take careful steps forward when they're discussing it really. Well, That's really
0: interesting <laughs> on the Labour side because I noticed Shami Chakrabarti the former shadow Attorney General she's a Labour peer human rights lawyer She was saying that she's sympathetic to the legislation itself, but she said the UK government might have a point in its argument that it clashes with equalities law. But there's other very senior legal figures in the Labour Party who are saying otherwise.
1: Well, yeah, I think Keir Starmer's taken quite a deliberate line on this. He was back on Sunday talking about how he has concerns about the bill he has concerns specifically about lowering the limit to 16 and he also said he has concerns about how it impacts the Equality Act and then since then they've not come down whether or not they support the government's decision to trigger section 35 they actually or most of the Labour MPs abstained on that vote in parliament and I think the Labour position at the moment is basically to say we're going to wait and see how the court battle plays out because it looks like that's where we're heading.
3: Yeah, and I think... (laughs) they're probably thinking if if the public comes to view both sides as acting in bad faith and trying to make it about unionism and independence north of the border that might not reflect on them well in the long term.
0: Yeah and I thought we got a glimpse of sort of Starmer's line on this issue because it is something that gets brought up every now and again when a new debate flares up about trans rights then he'll often be asked questions like this as a way of trying to eke out those divisions in the Labour Party that you mentioned Rachel but there appears to be this sort of new way that he's approaching it. I thought the most interesting thing he said was that for 99.9% of women the issue is biological and then he added there are a small number of people who don't identify with the gender they're born into and it's basically him presenting it as a niche issue isn't it and I thought this was quite interesting because When all of this was happening and the UK government was deciding to block the legislation, I was speaking to a a Labour person and they were saying the fact that they've made this into a constitutional crisis makes it into a Westminster story. It makes it into something that sounds like an irrelevance to our constituents. And I think perhaps playing it that way, why are you asking me these questions? You know, for most people, this is not a big thing in their lives. Perhaps is the way that he might take these kind of very tricky discussions going forward. Potentially.
3: But then whenever you say to... You know, during a broadcast interview, I was like, that's not a big issue. Everyone yeah, goes, yeah. "Are we sure?" There's a <laughs> <that's> <laughs> the reason why you're saying, it's not "Yeah, a big yeah, issue. yeah." It <laughs> might set people off, and I think while it's while it is a massive thing online, I'm not sure it's necessarily cutting through as a big issue amongst the public just yet. I mean, it became very divisive in Scotland, but mm. I just feel a bit flammed up. I don't know if you think the same thing, Freddie.
1: The polling yeah. that we do have in Scotland suggests that the bill itself isn't particularly popular, and the changes that it brings about aren't particularly popular, and also. When you compare it to the priorities of people in Scotland, gender reform doesn't really even enter the list. So I don't think it is a priority for most people. Most people are still concerned massively with the cost of living, the NHS, the state of the economy, the fact that prices are rising. These are the key issues that are shaping politics at the moment and will most probably shape the next election.
3: Mm. I would also add that one of the things that the Conservatives have said about this bill is that oh, it's been rushed through by the SNP. That's really not a fair criticism. You know, they've been like, like two consultations. They're, they're, like this is something that's been going on and being talked about for six years and the UK government could have engaged in that process many times prior to it getting to what's supposed to be viewed as a last resort by trying to block a bill at Royal Assent. So
1: the only thing I would say on that, I mean, it has been going through for a long time, but many of the questions that are relevant to the bill are yet to be answered. We had a key court judgment only come about in December last month about whether having a GRC does actually impact your rights under the Equality Act. So there are still legal questions that are being worked through whether or not we've had the political debate for a long time.
0: And for Nicola Sturgeon, I suppose the question is, is this the right legislation to pick this kind of fight over? If you're saying that it's not particularly popular among the Scottish public, then maybe it's not something that's going to capture their imagination and feel like they're under the boot of Westminster as much as perhaps something else that has more resonance.
1: Yeah, I did think that was curious. Why are we blending your key lifetime political issue the key mission of your political career with something that the poll suggests isn't particularly popular it seems like quite a, a risky move and also quite a divisive move as you said Rachel there are quite a few people in the SNP are also opposed these reforms so you're either splitting your movement or neglecting people's key priorities.
3: I mean th- but that assumes that that's the reason why they legislated yes, in the that's first true. place. Yeah. Yeah, think it's more yeah. good, we don't, good yeah, yeah, we like don't necessarily know balanced. that's the case I
1: guess. No it just means it, it might potentially be risky. Oh well, yeah, I mean,
3: if, I think either side would pre- presumably not want to pick an argument over this because in between all of this, and yeah. you know, obviously we don't have a trans voice during this podcast in between all of this is trans people who are wanting improvements to how their healthcare is conducted, so you know.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's move on to the next section. Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to the New Statesman with a very special offer – you can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12 if you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back.
1: If you enjoy the New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Weymouth. Featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis, of the latest political news, and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast
2: description. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off?
0: Now it's time for a section we like to call
3: You Ask Us. U.S.
0: And our question this episode is from Deborah: How will the Stormont stalemate... Uh, it's hard to say that. <laughs> Stormont stalemate, that is horrible. <laughs> Stormont, Stormont
1: stalemate, stalemate
0: three times faster. How will the Stormont stalemate end? What happens if it keeps dragging on? I think this is a really timely question because today, the 19th of January, is the latest in a series of deadlines that we've seen (laughs) fall away for the Northern Irish parties to get together and form an executive. So power sharing is unlikely to be re-established today, to say the least, which means it, it falls on the Northern Irish secretary. Chris Heaton-Harris to call an election within 12 weeks technically, but we've had these deadlines passed before. And the fact that this stalemate has come about is because the UP rejects the Northern Ireland Protocol and is essentially vetoing return to power sharing until it changes into a form that it can accept. Although there did appear to be some movement on the Northern Ireland Protocol last week. We didn't get to speak about it last week, so I'm glad that it's come up. The EU and UK reached an agreement on sharing trade data, but that's not exactly... A breakthrough considering all of the big sticking points that we've spoken about over and over again. What actually happened last week and is there a sort of better mood music to the negotiations?
3: I think there certainly is and I think we've got a number of deadlines coming up, haven't we? So we've got three year uh, since... Brexit at the end of this month. We've got the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement coming up in in April and I think there's just a hunger, particularly among Conservatives and Rishi Sunak to just get this done. Well he promised Biden that he'd
0: get it done by that Yeah, Yeah, there's a a
3: a lot of pressure coming from the US to get it sorted as well. I think while the EU won't change the protocol whatsoever, they might see some addendums added that kind of make it easier. I think the DUP's kind of increasingly cornered on the matter not least because businesses in Northern Ireland are benefiting from the protocol as it stands and really like it, which we don't hear about all that often. And I also just think there was a really smart move actually from Keir Starmer which was to say if the ERG kind of really dig their heels in and say we do not want anything within the protocol to be overseen by the European Court of Justice, won it out of the UK then he said we will vote with you and we'll get the protocol through and I just think that's going to be the interesting political argument going forward. Are the ERG going to just make hell as they very often do and make it difficult for Rishi Sunak? And if so, will Sunak be prepared to just actually accept the Labour vote and be like, I'm the consensus politician making Brexit work?
1: Yeah, I spoke to some of the members of the ERG last week and they were actually quite confused by this supposed progress in the talks. They said as well that they didn't think an agreement on data sharing was as dramatic as people were claiming, especially given that the EU have stipulated a few demands on the UK for that agreement. And then so th- pasag. <laughs> <laughs> and then they also said that they really need to focus on what the DUP is saying because we've got to remember in terms of our listeners question that the stalemate is there because the DUP have said they're not going to end enter the NI executive until they get the changes that they've demanded since uh, July last year they stipulated seven key requirements they want to see come about in the uh, UK EU negotiations around the protocol and they're actually quite stringent so even if the UK government and the EU do come to an agreement that doesn't necessarily mean we're going to get a restoration of the executive in Northern Ireland because the DUP will say this isn't good enough one of the key things that the DUP and the ERG are concerned about is the ECJ having jurisdiction Over Northern Ireland, I think the DUP actually visited the ERG this week and they said uh, afterwards, their report coming out of the meeting, that they were very much aligned on this issue. And Mm. to change the jurisdiction of the ECJ, you'd have to reopen the protocol, which currently Maris Sefcovic, the um, vice president of the commission and the lead negotiator on this issue, isn't allowed to do. So I'm not sure how we get through this stalemate. I put it to one of them last week. What if the government are basically planning to put you guys to one side and also put the DUP to one side and basically come to an agreement with the EU. And they just they couldn't fathom that happening. Um, and the other thing we have to think about, this is why Starman's comments are so relevant, as you said, Rachel, is Sunak's weak position within Parliament. How these negotiations actually come about in terms of a vote in Parliament is yet to be seen, and I don't know whether the ERG would want to force a vote on that somehow um, or what have you. But um, if they do, I mean, they have sufficient numbers to reduce a Sunak's majority. I mean uh, mm-hmm. that he would need to rely on Labour which we must say he hasn't been willing to do so far. We've got to remember Starmer also offered Labour votes for planning reform and Sunak rejected them then. So I, I'm not sure where we are. I don't know how much progress has been made and I'm not sure how we bring these two groups together as has been the case for the past year or two years and even before that.
3: And I guess it depends how people are prepared to vote. I mean if the if DUP's kind of blocking successful businesses from being successful in Northern Ireland how will voters ultimately view that? Are they fed up? and Do they want to move on?
1: Yeah, the other thing from the Northern Ireland perspective, which is really interesting, we've got to remember that the DUP isn't the only unionist party there. So they've got the TUV and other unionist parties on their right saying that if the DUP cave in these negotiations, yeah. they will lose votes. And when we had the uh, NI Assembly election back in May... For the first time, we had Sinn Féin coming top and the DUP actually lost a few seats. What would happen in a future election? I think the latest date we can have one now is the 13th of April. What would happen there is yet to be seen and that'll be playing on all of the unionist minds going forward. And then on the 13th of April date, we've also got to remember that this also just might be extended again.
0: Yes, exactly. So they
1: have to pass laws in the UK Parliament to allow the Secretary of State to extend that date. But that happened in December very easily. It went through very easily. So we could see that happening again.
3: Yeah. And parties like Alliance doing quite well in the polls as well. Who kind You know, middle middle ground parties. You know, there's kind of a growing feeling, I think, in Northern Ireland that they just want to move on and want, yeah. to, get, want yeah. to move forward. Yeah. And I think it just, I can't imagine if the anniversary of... The Good Friday Agreement comes up, and Rishi Sunak hasn't got a deal. Don't I think that would just be? Yeah,
0: because that would be visiting, really really damaging so for him be, on the world stage. It would actually, be quite I think. yeah,
3: it really would.
0: With, with a foreign visit like that, does it make any difference that we have Steve Baker and Chris Heaton-Harris in the Northern Ireland office? Big Brexiteers, are they able to still hold sway with their ERG bodies? <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: I think you've seen uh, CNET's government try to adopt a new tone on lots of issues. They've tried to adopt a new, friendlier, tolerant tone in terms of strikes, in terms of foreign policy, in terms of our negotiations with the EU. And Steve Baker, has been key in that, we saw him last year, apologise yeah. to some of the hard-fought battles during the Brexit wars. And... We are seeing that in terms of increased negotiations, but we've got to remember as well, these aren't formal negotiations yet. Yeah. We've still not had formal negotiations between the EU and the UK until last February. I think it also depends on the, some political implications within the
3: Conservative Party and like, how much does Suella Braverman want to be the next Conservative Party leader? And how much of a big deal do they want to make about the ECJ as a result? That's yeah. kind of a key question going forward. It's thing. sort of
0: Andrew Marr's thesis of the kind of Brexit wars coming back to eat the party even so long in the future. And our question actually is about what happens if it keeps dragging on. And actually, you've got to think about what it means for people in Northern Ireland without government that it keeps Jeez. dragging on. Imagine if in England we didn't have a government. It would just be such a huge thing causing so much anger and it really is there and it's having a real life impact so Northern Ireland has the worst NHS waiting lists of all of the countries in the UK Medical leaders there have come together and made statements begging political parties to get back to power sharing so that they can actually make those high level political decisions about health policy strategy to try and sort out the crisis that's happening there. Um, And there was there is one assembly member Paula Bradshaw for the Alliance Party that you mentioned, Rachel, who said that a lack of an executive is not a theoretical issue. And I think often in these discussions, you end up thinking of it as a theoretical issue and the matter of deadlines and legislation, but actually it's having a real life impact. And I've been speaking Speaking to an academic who's been speaking to low-income families across the UK, asking them what policies they'd like to introduce. And one of the top six policies that they came up with was to restore the Northern Ireland executive, you know, so a day-to-day life reality for people.
1: Yeah, and and the government, the UK government have been very clear that they want the... NI executive to restore itself as soon as possible. They passed a bill in December cutting the pay of Northern Ireland assembly members by about 20% just to put pressure on them to try and uh, return to government. I mean, yeah, as you said, Anoush, when we don't have ministers in devolved assemblies or parliaments, decisions aren't made because civil servants can't make those decisions. I think the bill in December did allow some civil servants to make some decisions, and all you're going to see if we don't see the restoration of the NI executive is... Basically, the civil service and Westminster taking more and more decisions are eventually going to have the restoration of direct rule for a period of time until you get yeah. elections and a negotiation.
3: And just going back to what we were talking about earlier, you know, SNP can look at this situation and be like, you know, why would we continue to be part of this union when it's all just a complete mess? We voted to remain and Northern Ireland has the closest relationship with, with the <laughs> EU of any part of the UK and we're still left up here making our points about Brexit and being Mm. part of something we don't want to be part of. Yeah. Gets difficult politically as well.
0: And just before we leave you, a quick correction from us. On the 12th of January episode of the New Statesman podcast, during a discussion about anti-strike legislation, there was a suggestion that individual workers may be arrested. Now, this was incorrect. Sorry about that. As we made clear in our intro to the topic, the law would be enforceable in just two ways, allowing employers to fire workers who strike and to sue unions that don't ensure a minimum level of service. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, my colleagues, Rachel Wearmouth and Freddie Hayward. We're produced by Mae Robson and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening. And don't forget to subscribe, leave us a nice review and send us a question to newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us.